0: Folks, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. And as we wrap up 2022, it is always great to reconnect with friends of the program and guys who are determined to carry on the lineage of modern day music in any form, any genre, working with not only their peers, but with younger cats as well, trying to help them find their individual voice and continually pushing them out of their comfort zone so that they can grow. My guests have been doing that for well over the last half century uh, in all different musical settings, and uh, even though the pandemic slowed us all down quite a bit, it's been really wonderful to see him sort of creeping back out onto the stage prolifically with all his comrades as we try to move forward in this incredibly interesting time in the world. John Molo, welcome back to The Jake Feinberg Show.
1: Hey, thank you so much. It's great to be back.
0: It's so, it's so good to hear your voice, man. I, um, I want to read you this story and then um, <clears throat> and have you uh, just extrapolate on it. And th- I, just, I, I just did another interview with Brother Jim Keltner. And so he talked about, he said, uh, he was with Delaney and Bonnie. He said, I got angry with Delaney because he wouldn't let me get a sub. I wanted to go back to New York and do a record with uh, Lena Horn and Gabor Zabow. I was all set to leave at 6 p.m., but we were doing this TV show called Harper Valley PTA. We were doing this little bit on the show, and it took all day. I was going to miss my flight if I didn't go. I told, I told Delaney, I said, listen, I got Jim Gordon. I got Jimmy Carstein, Ed Blackwell. Any one of those guys can take my place. He said, you're the drummer, Chuck Blackwell, you're the drummer, you've got to play. I left for New York to do the record, and he calls me in my hotel room and said, you don't need to come back early for us. You've been replaced. That rocked me pretty good, but I was smart enough to know why, and I let that be a very valuable lesson for me. Years later, he was always telling me, damn it, Jimmy, that was the worst thing I ever did was fire you. I said, Delaney, I left you no choice. So there's t- two, two questions there. One, you know, did you have sort of a... You know, I know the nuns raised you really well and all that, but did you you have a wake-up call, something like that, where, you know, you were in a band, you had opportunities to do other musical engagements, and it was just a lesson learned, and then the subset to that question is ultimately how you connected with uh, Delaney Bramlett.
1: Um, I think any musician who has the endurance and the attitude to try to be successful has moments like that where maybe you fall apart playing wise or something you thought you should be doing and maybe you end up doing it and you realize maybe you shouldn't be doing that. Um, And choices that you make are incredibly important. Uh, You know, um, I'm sort of hopping ahead there because all of a sudden it conjured up all these memories.
0: Yeah, I know. I want to get an exact, Delaney, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Uh, who, who was truly
1: gifted, and uh, mm. but also with a lot of people who are gifted, they can sometimes have some issues. Um, so even with Delaney, as much as I really respected him, uh, you know, he would say, he thought I played like Jim Gordon, which I thought was just an incredible compliment. Mm. Uh, he was always genteel until about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. (laughs) And I'm not sure what he was doing, but his personality would change a little bit. So I would always try to be out of there. I would try to do like 11 to 3 and get out of there and uh, have a really good musical experience. Like I said, he could be a little tough sometimes. But uh, I had some beautiful people around me. there. You know, Chad Watson is just... Yeah. An angel. He's just a beautiful cat and great to work with. Um, that's interesting that Jim had that experience. Uh, for me, I think I told you before, it was when I auditioned for the Army Band, trying to replace Steve Gadd as a 17-year-old and getting challenged to play Yankee Doodle Dandy in seven-eight. I didn't really play it that well at age 17, but My when I walked out of there... Uh, Jake, I have to say, when I walked out of there, boy, did I practice odd times—seven, eleven, nine, five. It really turned me around that experience because I thought I was just a great player at age seventeen. I had a lot of chops. I was okay. I had a good musical memory, but I wasn't all that good yet. So we all have moments where we get our ass kicked, and uh, I think that was it for me. Along with, you know, just trying to break into the Mike Post TV film scene. Really wasn't my thing. I was okay at it. I had a good feel, but I was not the greatest reader. I was okay, but there are some cats there like Mike Baird or Steve Schaefer that could really read and, and play great. Willie Ornelas included.
0: Yeah, Dude, I love great you bringing stars. up these cats. I mean, these are guys are going back to the. It's just so great to hear your voice, man. Willie Ornelas, but still, you didn't. You told me that you know. uh with the army band, the guy brought up, uh, a couple of, both guys were great. One of them was better. It was gad, but then you were, I never heard the story about you were play, try, trying to replace him. though.
1: Yeah. We, uh, the Langley high school jazz lab band, we had a class every day where we play open for the army band. So the army band guys pretty much heard me play. And at that age, like I said, I was, a bit, I forget what the word is precocious, you know, really developed for, 16 or 70 I had a great teacher from the Navy band great high school teacher so I sounded pretty good so I, that's how I got the audition and I went out there Steve was gonna leave and I think moved to New York so I played three tunes I think uh, one kind of just a basic kind of basic swing thing and then kind of a thing which we would call back then bossa Rock <laughs> just kind of a Americana feel of bossa, mm. and then the Yankee Doodle Dandy and Seven, which I just totally could not play, um, and that was that really turned it around for me to like really start practicing. Now the the second part of your question was
0: about Delaney. Mm-hmm. It was just in general. I I was looking up your discography today because I, I hate to you know go over things we've already talked about, but I, and I just saw that you had collaborated with him, and you know I still. I mean, I'm not sure, you know, how I would have felt if I had seen Delaney and Bonnie in their heyday. I mean, Clapton was in love with them. I just wanted to know your experience or how you actually originally connected with him to and if you actually went on tour with him at all. or was just an album.
1: I think it was the bass player, Chad Watson. There was Bob Gross, the bass player, who's an awesome player, and Mark Karen. I think maybe one of those guys introduced me to to Delaney. But the thing I like about Delaney was, man, learn the song and play it a couple times. And that's it. He had a great feel for mixing. You know, it wasn't about levels for Delaney. It was about feel and does the song come across with the vocal. Uh, You know, I don't know that he was delusional occasionally, but, you know, he would say something like, uh, you know, he'd talk about pop staples. He'd talk about how he taught George Harrison how to play slide guitar in some ways, and I think he was a big influence on Clapton, vocally. Mm. You know, so he's just a, a musical heavy. One of my best memories was, uh, or something I remember, he had a horse named Junior, that was uh, not in the future, it was in the pasture by his house, I'm sorry about that. Um, sorry. And my daughter was riding at that point in time, so she, my daughter Shannon was about 12 years old, and we went out there. And she saw that horse and Delaney said, you like to ride? She went, yeah. She hopped on that horse bareback up at Delaney's place. Riding around when I was playing drums, doing a track or listening. So some great memories. And his place was really cool. Uh, Like I said, I think he had some battles, you know, I don't know, metal or drug or.
0: Who knows? Yeah, he oh, was sort I of, I mean, that's what, that, that. you know, I'm sure you've known many artists, like, you know, sort of split personalities or a little bit schizophrenic. Oh, oh sure. Yeah.
1: Uh, as I say about one of my close friends, oh, yeah, did you like working with him? I said, yeah, you know, I really got to know him well. He has five personalities, <laughs> probably five different personalities, and I really like
0: three of them. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what Zoots. I mean, Zoot Sims used to say that about Stan Getz. He's a bunch of nice guys, you know. Yeah, or he's a nice sure bunch. He's can. a nice and bunch of guys.
1: Well. Yeah. you know, and all of those, a lot of them, just, you know, brilliant musically. You know, well,
0: you know, I, 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 I'm not talking about Warren or Sco or or Phil, but do you think that, um, younger younger cats today, you know, like. The Okay, the Yankee Doodle Dandy was clearly a learning... You know, that humbled you. You were young, arrogant. And and then, you know, being in the studios, I mean, I, you know, early 80s in the studios, Beverly Hill, it was, it was still cutthroat. They didn't... You know, you probably had to get your reading chops up, although, quite honestly, being a great field drummer, like Keltner told me, you know, a lot of times you wouldn't even have to read. You could just feel the song. It wouldn't be that complex. But to me, like, those were healthy, competitive experiences. You knew where you stood. You knew what you had to get better at. And, you know, it pushed you out of your comfort zone. And I just wonder, with all the myriad of younger cats that you play with, do you feel that... What are the opportunities that they get to be able to walk home in an introspective state after a gig? Because it seems to me, you know, we just... We live in a time where it's, you know, clips go up on YouTube. Everyone's patting each other on the back. But sometimes you need to hear what you don't want to hear. And I just wonder if that still exists, especially in that jam world, because, I mean, you've been every, you've been ubiquitous since October of this year everywhere with these cats. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah, the younger guys. So it's interesting. I think for a lot of them, like, uh, we'll go with Brian Jones, who's mm. playing guitar with Paramore now. Uh, Played bass with Glenn Stefani, who's the featured soloist with Vampire Weekend. And he's only like 28.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, you've talked about him before. Yeah.
1: yeah, so I think he grew up in it. I think his parents, uh, and I know his dad fairly well, a lot of, a lot of Stevie Wonder, a lot of Earth, Wind & Fire. And then the area he grew up in, I think there was a lot of Stones and Beatles and Pink Floyd and Skinner and all sorts of stuff. He just sort of got humbled that way. Like, you I mean these guys are like rolling tape and they're not really tuning vocals? This is all a different analog world, right? I think some of them are like that. Uh, the young guy I work with now, who's a senior in high school, Asher Belsky, he listens to a lot of music. A lot of old stuff, and he's a he's a great player. So I think um, just because of where it's at right now, a lot of it is field playing. But a lot of these kids that come along, uh, I can give an example, like Brendan McCusker. It's the engineer on Ryan Adams' recent recordings. Not all, but some. But he's also the drummer. <laughs> hmm. He's a digital Pro Tools native. Not like me. I'm I'm an analog guy. He knows Pro Tools really well and moves quickly. And those guys know the path of how to get there, work really hard, work with a good writer, work with a writer that's going to record songs, and then go out and play in public. So the path is a little bit more defined now, what you need to do to be successful. So. I think even with Blake Mills, as much of a, I don't want to say prodigy, just as good as he was as a kid, you know, age 16, 17, he's doing records in LA. Um, I think there's still some humbling moments, even for somebody as good as him, where you're like, I want to be that. Mm. And so I think it's a little different now.
0: It's different in what, just in the sense that also the fact that you were showing up and playing with. Real human heartbeats and real pulses. I mean, to me, like you're talking about more of a kind of a codified, or I'm not going to say curriculum, but it's a little bit more formula tripped as as it relates to what you need to do to sing for your supper. Before it was, it was you know, you go in. I, I mean, you know, tack it, Lee written. Who knows was on these studio sessions, but to me, it was definitely more of like a workshop experience. Uh, and you were with your, you, you kind of knew where you were at because you were engaging with real human beings. And I just wonder what, yeah. what that humbling is that humbling experience now showing up, plugging in, doing something that, and you walk away saying, I want to do more of that, but doing it sort of in isolation. It's just seeing, I'm just trying to figure out what is humbling, uh, aside from the fact that there's, and I'm not talking about Blake or the cats you mentioned, but just in general, you know, my hero, Alex coford, people like that, who are just like, I mean, you know, they're trying to get original music off the ground. They're trying to sing for their supper. That is in itself a huge challenge. So I just wonder, like, what is what makes it different from when you were cook, like even in the studio scene? What What is what is different between then and now?
1: Well, I think you touched on it I think, A lot of, um, you know, in a room by yourself <clears throat> doing bass overdubs or you're doing a, a lot of the playing and there's not that sense of community. Even going back, I don't know that we talked about this, but when an album will come out, Stevie Wonder, you know, Inner Visions or whatever, right? whoever got the record first, you'd go over to that guy's place and listen in a room with probably four or five other people. <laughs> that doesn't happen now. It's not even communal listening. It's people with a playlist and, and Bud's in there here and they're walking isolated. It's not a communal thing. So, the same with the playing. So, if I go to a session and Leland Scholar is going to be on it, I know it's going to be good. I know he's not going to make any mistakes and I know he's going to be quick and it's going to be good from the get. Same with Bob Lob or, you know, Jimmy Hassler, great bass players, J.P. Collier, so many,
0: Hutch. Um, yeah, totally.
1: Sears, who I get to work with. These guys are like on it. And they inspire you, and they bring something else out. Pete and I rarely talk arrangement as much as we play the song, listen to what each other's playing, and then modify the parts to match the other guy. But it's sort of unspoken. It's just more of a primordial thing. Oh, Pete's playing that there. If I play this, I I think that'll really work well. But rarely will he tell me what to play. He might ask me what I'm playing, but it never... Uh, a moment that's not, like, uh, just communal.
0: Yeah, I want to just, I I want to, I want to, yeah, no, because Sklar said the same thing. First of all, see, Chris Robinson was, still continued that tradition with the Rustlers, where you'd have communal listening. uh, I remember you telling me that, where you guys would be sitting around listening to stuff together. But Oh,
1: yeah, Chris was great with that. He'd have, like, a a little speaker set up, and, gosh, listen to Yeah,
0: right. You know, know, uh,
1: Josh, what did he have that just blew me away? Chico Hamilton. (laughs) So it was a fun listening thing.
0: But you're telling me that, because Sklar, almost verbatim to what you said in one of our interviews, he talked about getting together, and also the albums were, not necessarily Stevie Wonder, but in some cases, like, they were concept albums. You'd get get together with your friends, listen to Side A. So you're telling me when you work with the Greybeard, so to speak, Because of that experience of communal listening, they're in touch with the conversation and they can basically knock it out right away.
1: Yeah, pretty much.
0: As opposed to really just being kind of, in, you know, as just younger cats sort of being absorbed with their own sound. I guess that's the, how do you, when you see a younger cat, I don't care what genre of music, what you're playing with them. You can tell right away that they've been in their room really getting off on their own sound as opposed to really opening their ears and listening to the communal conversation. As a yeah, drummer. I can tell. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, how but I mean if yeah, you care well, about that person and you think that they do have potential, how do you sort of you know push them out of the even on the in, in a live setting? I mean, do you do, do you hit the do you hit the rim? Do you do you hit a cl- I mean, what do you do to sort of Get somebody to sort of get them out of their thinking mind, because everybody's in their thinking mind today, you know. And, and the idea is get out of that, get in this in the, as you said, the primordial gut or the spirit mind. How, yeah, how,
1: that's why every once in a while we do one of those driveway gigs. Uh,
0: <laughs> I think we yes, had uh, yeah. Tim Copes, uh, one of the teachers down at USC, sat so. in. We
1: had Katie, we had Asher Belski, Brian Jones on bass, maybe JT from Bruce Hornsby's band. Uh-huh. And the fun one on that, I don't know, I told you Tim Pierce, one of my neighbors, I I said, hey, Tim, we're going to play He came down, nobody knew who he was. He just sat there and had a great time. And I think Tim Tim Copes have said, man, if I hadn't known Tim Pierce was sitting behind me, I would have been kind of nervous. I said, nothing but love from that guy. He wanted you to sound great. And for all the young players to realize, there's nobody out there that wants you to not sound good. You know, the players might want to get your gig But the listeners want you to sound and play great. So just remember that. Even if you're doing an audition, like recently one of my young friends auditioned at, like, I don't know, maybe it was North Texas or Miami. And he said, well, my hands were shaking during the audition. I said, well, was it early in the morning? And he said, yeah. I said, did you have anything to eat? He said, no. I said, did you drink caffeine? He goes, yeah. I was jet lagged, too. And I said, well, next time you go in, don't be the first one in have something to eat, and don't have any caffeine. And realize that those people down there, they want you to play great. They want you to sound really good. So, that's my take to young players, and to get out there and play. Like I said, with Asher Belsky, I met him when he was 13. He came up to me and said, I'd really like to play with you someday, John Molo. (laughs) And I said, well, okay. We will. And we have. We haven't done a lot of stuff, but he was seeing it in his mind at that age. He wanted to be on stage and play live with really good players. And uh, you know, I think you got to see yourself doing that. If you see yourself like making records by yourself in, in your bedroom in North Hollywood, chances are you might end up there. So I right. think you got to visualize it too at first. So for the young guys to know, like, see yourself where you want to be, and then try to get there.
0: But the, since the last time we talked, I've I've had a chance to interview. Uh, Danny Gottlieb and, uh, Mark Egan. And they, you know, they talked about, uh, Egan, especially the late seventies, Lyle Mays, Matheny, they went on like a pretty heavy, like probably over 150 gig gigs in a, and playing original tunes. And, uh, and, and, not, and but there, no album had come out. And then after those tunes had taken out a life of their own, being played live so much, then they went in the studio, maybe an ECM, or I forget what studio it was, but they went in and cut the tunes, and some of those tunes, a couple of them were inevitably, there were different little tweaks here and there, bridges, just because they had played it live so much. And that's also a page out of, you know very well, the the Grateful Dead book. They didn't get in the studio for seven years uh, making an album. And I, did you have, I mean in your in in your entire career Hampton uh Hampton Ro- uh v- uh Virginia Beach or Miami or El-
1: Hampton Roads Newport News right Newport News. you
0: know did you did you ever get in a group where the concept was you know cuz the the rush today is okay you got to make an album then you tour the album but if the songs are almost in their infancy, uh, and then you start touring those songs, it could easily atrophy. Obviously, some people want to hear the formula stuff, but did you were you ever in a group that went, road-dogged the tunes, worked it out, and then actually went in the studio, and it was just a situation where a couple of those tunes were fundamentally completely different from when you had originally played them?
1: Yeah, we did that with, uh, with Bruce, kind of. But it wasn't necessarily the songs as much as just cons- conceptually... Bruce kind of came up with this thing doing demos. He was by himself. He's writing songs and then brought him to the band and we started playing him. And we did the best we could. But we had heard uh, Danny Gottlieb. I was at the University of Miami when he was down there. Rod Morgenstein was down there too. Steve Bagby. No, uh,
0: really Bagby, did, did you and Bagby hang, dude? I, I'm obsessed with Bagby, dude. No, I, not really. I mean, I yeah. just met him. I uh, dude, nasty was. drummer, dude. Joe DiOrio, and him would play at a church down there, man. It's unbelievable. Yeah, Joe DiOrio, yeah. um, Bagby,
1: and uh, Vince Lawrence Maggio, the pianist. Uh, Iris Sullivan was down there. Oh,
0: there. of course, dude. Great Listen players, to you, but, man. Yeah, I yeah.
1: love Danny's playing. I think Danny and I were on a Quinnipiac <laughs> High School jazz festival. <laughs> thing, and, uh,
0: oh, that's I when it. I think oh. I first met him.
1: And Danny's a, you know, we didn't hang out or nothing, but I or anything like that. But I liked him. I thought he was a nice guy. I was kind of a wild guy down there in Miami. But he was very serious and really good, and I dug what he was doing on the symbols. Really broadened my thing. Mark Egan, too, great player. Probably should be
0: more well-known. Definitely. But it a prefers great a great player. T- whole, no, I mean, so you were, in in a sense, uh, somebody that you were not, you were um, out just sort of swinging and, and not necessarily – able to, you know, you weren't necessarily practicing eight hours a day. What does it mean to be a wild man? I mean, you're still a wild man.
1: Oh, just, I was like into the student body. I was like
0: partying <laughs> and you know, drinking
1: keg beer and listening to the stones and yeah. Pink Floyd. Oh, you know, Walsh. Man. I was not like the traditional, you know, nose to the grindstone jazzer. I was there for the great players who were there and all the cool students, the beautiful women and really cool guys. I mean, I think Ray Liotto was down there when I was down there. And then, you know, you had guys like, uh, you know, I'm talking about the actors. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, you've dipped your down foot down. in that, in that well. I mean, that's, yeah. you, Liotta there was doing stand-up. Ambitious yeah.
1: kids there, And also the music department had, uh, Steve Morris was there. He was ambitious and had a plan of writing, recording, rehearsing, going out and doing gigs. So I think Gottlieb, and Eden Steve Morris, Matheny, Jocko, Hiram in a way, uh, had this idea of how to be successful. And that's what I developed along with Bruce Hornsby. I'd write good tunes, rehearse them, play them, and try to record them and get a record deal. So that was a... Did kind of a formula, and what we did. So I think with Bruce and I and the range, it was an evolving thing. We heard Matheny and those guys in Richmond. I think it just blew us away. They were just fantastic. Miles May. Oh my God, Danny. So I haven't talked to Danny in a while, but you know.
0: Well, I got his. I, 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 we we had an. Ep, I'll, I'll I'll text you his number if you want to call him because the guy is just he's more affable and accessible than ever before. Where uh, is he now? I think he's in Nashville and. Oh, no absolutely and um i can't remember who the guy i can see his face he's an actor but uh in the past he was like you know he was he loved bebop and jazz so they go on he does a lot of stuff for veterans i can't remember the guy's name but he's his he's that guy's drummer so they do a lot of stuff for the, the the veterans of this country did you you know the one i didn't want i did not want to leave this on the floor i've also interviewed uh the legendary will lee did, did yes. you did you have it? Can you talk about his father? Because his father basically saved that music program.
1: Yes, I believe so. Dean Lee.
0: Yes, yes. Dean. Dean that's right, Dean. I mean, he was an he was in he was somewhere in Texas. He rebuilt some college out there, and then they brought him into Miami because it was flailing. But Will was, you know, it's his son. But the, I mean, that dude, he Will was saying his dad was playing. He was totally into Winton Kelly and stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean, he—he he's a legend. He's an icon. I didn't know him. He had split by the time I got to the oh. University of Miami. But the legend of Will Lee, you know, like I said, that band, that was Hiram Bullock. He was at the University of Miami. Will Lee. Uh, Steve Jordan was the drummer, of course. I think he was just a, he was a, just a great player in New York. But Hiram and uh, Will definitely had some University of Miami uh, swagger to them, <laughs> And very talented, of course.
0: Yeah, no, he was talking about... Uh, uh... Bagby, uh, and then this guy Clifford Carter on keyboards too.
1: Cliff was just a ton of feel, and I remember I think Cliff left Miami um, and went to New York maybe. And I remember hearing something like he got the gig with the Four Tops.
0: Right, right. He which got just
1: yeah. sounded incredible to me at the
0: time. <laughs> I was like wow,
1: a great player. Maybe he ended up with uh, James Taylor for a while. I'm not sure, but he was really good. And I remember his, I might have been the singer from the East Street band, Patty? Yeah. She was down there too at University of Miami, as I recall. Not that, I don't know anything about like if they were involved or anything like that, but just, yeah, Cliff was down there, Hiram, Bagby was around. Um, just some, some great, great players. And what a time, you know, and Jocko didn't go to school there, but he was, heavy influence
0: on everybody did you were you hip to uh willie hale little beaver N- i know. <laughs> you know because you know you know who you know very well that i because who knew him very well was the legendary norman harris from norm's rare guitars you know like that we did a whole epi- episode on little beaver dude I yeah, mean, that's
1: the he told me
0: about it. <laughs> exactly, dude. <laughs> it's
1: like sort of like the great piano player I know you know over in, from who was James Booker.
0: Oh my God, yeah.
1: It's like somebody has to tell you about him. That's right. Like, how did how I
0: miss this guy? No, you. I mean, you 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 always like, even though you're not from that that bebop era. I mean, you you have that that you easily could could have you know grown up in that time and done just just fine. But they, some of those cats were. Uh, a little bit before you were I mean in Little Beaver's case I mean that guy was just
1: yeah, just well, nasty you know like uh, one of my young friends was pointing out that my generation is kind of a it goes kind of generationally Steve Gadd James Gadsden Jeff Picardo and then Tristan Bowden and then maybe I'm in that next decade era you know, you got guys like Mike Barrett Willie Ornelas Herman Matthews all these cool drummers and it changes a little bit and you know, there's a big influence of the black gospel, you know, Church of God in Christ, Sonny Emery.
0: Um, Absolutely, all sorts of players.
1: It just changes a little bit here and
0: there. What know, about just... Fred Fred White from Earth, Wind and Fire too? I mean, I had, these guys were. I, I, you know I just saw <coughs> I just saw last week, and it's it's I'm still sort of riding the high as is, uh, is Little Feet with Tony Leone and Scott Sherrard. But have you had a chance to play with Tackett or Gradney or Payne ever before?
1: Yes. I played with Billy. Um, I sat in with Little Feet at Listener Auditorium in Washington, D.C. and played.
0: What year was that?
1: Oh, gosh, I can't even remember.
0: That's back. an old, the dog Listener, the that, day of the dog races. oh, my God, dude, they, wait and Anyway,
1: said... we finished, and I think LaVon Helm was there as well, and Jackson Brown, and maybe a bunch of cool people there, you know, legendary, I'm dropping names, but it was a pretty big event, so, uh, I don't think, though, when I played, I don't think Billy Payne or or Paul Barrera had told Kenny Gradney that I was going to sit in. I kind of got
0: to look like, who's this guy? Yeah, well, Gradney's always giving. The
1: The last thing Richie Hayward said to me, I I said, hey, man, thanks for letting me play your kit. I said, I'm going to enjoy listening. And I I was staying at my folks' place uh, in Great Falls, McLean area. So I said, I'm going to hang and then I'm going to go. But I just want to say, thanks a lot, Richie. And he looked right by me, and he said, "Yeah, man, you seen Levon Helm anywhere?"
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh my, dude, I get that. that oh.
1: about humbling moments. Maybe that would have been humbling, but I thought it was just funny. You know, like, I'm glad
0: that you will. Um, first of all, uh, but I mean, what was your connection to the band that got you in? Are you just they were like, "Oh, Molo's here." I mean, did hey did you know Richie before, or how did you even get? Uh,
1: no, I, you know, I knew Richie a little bit, but yeah. I'm b- basically Paul Barrera and. Billy had become a musical acquaintances. They went out and did about 20 gigs with Phil Lesh. Really? Yeah. Wow. We opened for Bob Dylan or Bob opened for us.
0: Oh, like late, generation. late nineties kind of thing. Maybe. I don't know. I'm, I'm trying think to, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. Before Phil like really
1: found his thing with the Q, uh, we, we, we did that. And uh, that's how I met those guys. So when I showed up, I was in DC. I came down to listener and just said, hi. They were like, you want to play? And,
0: Dude, Not I sure. I do that's such I don't a think co- they told the other guys, so yeah.
1: anyway. Yeah. Um but you know, what an honor to get up there and they trusted me to play that. I was just like, holy cow. So
0: Well no, the, yeah. you know, you just you nailed it uh I love that Richie was like, you know, have you seen Levon around, you know, and uh <laughs> <laughs> you know, like like uh have you always kind of uh, ascribe to the to the motto of, you know, I take what I do very seriously, but I don't take myself very seriously. Yes. And, you know, and... and in a word,
1: yes. Yeah. Absolutely. I just feel it's, uh, you know, I'm one of those people, I can hear the music, I can get it inside of my heart and soul and brain, and then I can get behind the drum set and send it back out, kind of. Um, and I just think it's a gift in life that I have. I'm not going to be a, you know... A lawyer, an accountant, or you know, in sales. My other professions would have been
0: lobbyist on Capitol Hill. No, oh, you would have been phenomenal, or or yeah. you know, Wawa's. You know, cat. You could have been golfing with Wawa all day. You know, I mean, or yeah. Or, or, and my other profession would be
1: hairdresser. I
0: think. <laughs> all right, one final question for you before you go. Amen. Yeah, hey, Tell me about she. I've met her. I've had a chance to hang with her. I gotten to know her pretty well, and I know that. She was on a couple of those fill sessions in our, at the Capitol, but can you talk a little bit about your uh, reaction, first reactions to Michaela Davis, the harp player?
1: <laughs> sure. My first reaction was when they said, "And you know, Michaela will be on harp." I was like. <laughs> blues harp or like
0: <laughs> yeah, harp right. harp? charlie muscle harp yeah, and then, right. yeah you know i
1: think i mentioned it to jason crosby but, but then i kind of realized oh that's that's she, that's who she is
0: right. okay
1: now i know uh playing wise you know we're at stern grove in downtown san francisco doing a gig with phil and you know i got scott Metzger and jason and, um Graham
0: and, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, Graham was up there. Oh,
0: Stuart Bogey, the legendary horn player, yeah? Yeah, I
1: didn't...
0: Yeah. I that didn't dude's ridiculous, him. dude. Ridiculous but, guy, yeah.
1: Uh, yeah, there's the harp over there. <laughs> Michaela, uh,
0: yeah,
1: I, right. <laughs> gosh, I think it should be inspirational to these guitarists who are always tuned up. Look at that thing she has to tune. But she really brought just a... <clears throat> you know, this great element to it. I mean, the setting is like it's like a fairy tale out of Nottingham or something like that. It's just... <laughs>
0: You mean the yeah. venue? The venue. The ve- the ve- yeah.
1: yeah. Go ahead. Her music. Yeah. What she did just fit in great. So we had Scott, and then yeah, we had um,
0: Katie Jacoby. His... Yeah.
1: And Katie on violin.
0: It was. A, it was. Her, l-
1: know, her, she plays with the Who. Dark hair.
0: Absolutely. Lady. Yeah. No. Ridiculous. I mean, I, I saw great some of those player. clips, but I just was wondering. I'm like, you know, with knowing Molo. When he would see that harp, the first time that harp comes out, you know, you're just like, wow, this is this is going to be interesting, you know?
1: Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. Uh, you know, if, if Stanley and Scott and Jason and Katie uh, all would kind of chime at the same time, the harp, it just became this... It wasn't cacophonous, it was beautiful, just this kind of pulsating, uh, all-inclusive sound, yeah, so... My reaction was okay. First of all, uh, uh, harp—I uh, think was the first time I played with the harp in that setting for sure. And then, am I going to be able to hear them and hear her? And so that was my concern. Like on that gig, not how I'm I, I, how I'm going to sound, more like okay, how are we going to make this thing sound really good? And our front of house guy Drew did a great job. I mean, that's a lot of harmonic real estate to cover and to mix, but did uh, a great job. And Stanley was just. Wonderful as usual,
0: for sure. You know, well, that's, soul. I mean, that's... First of all, y- did you previously play with, like, in, like, some sort of Alice Coltrane harp setting, or you, you're, you've never played with a harp before? Or that Was that the first time? I don't
1: think so. Yeah, I think maybe with Mike Post there might have been a harp on ah, the Ah, listen to that. I don't remember any extended jamming with a harpist or a harp person.
0: <laughs> well, listen, uh... Molo, man, I I really want to see you in person uh, as soon as possible in twenty twenty three, man, and I and I just keep your keep keep the heartbeat going and uh, much love to you and your family, man. Oh,
1: thank you so much, Jake. Now, where are you living
0: now? You- uh, Tucson, same same old, same old. You know,
1: man, I don't know if we're going to get close to Tucson, but
0: um... well, I mean, what what is I mean, I, I still, I mean, I, I I dropped some notes to Anna Moon Alice. I can't get a hold of her. Just trying to get to just to catch a hang with Roger, you know. Do you think we can figure that out?
1: Yeah, I think I mentioned it, but he's got so much on his plate. You know, occasionally he'll become an activist, and you know, you'll see him on.
0: Well, it's a TV. good time to become me one. We
1: mentioned it again, Jake, for sure.
0: Well, if you do, you think you, you you have any plans to being in the state of Arizona? I mean, we always get neglected. No, the
1: closest we're going to be uh, at Arizona, I think, would be with Phil, uh, February fourth in Denver, but. Yeah, let me let me redo that. Yeah, let's just let's just keep Roger the let's down. just
0: grease the wheels, man. It's it's so, so so good to hear your voice, and it's always a pleasure yeah. to talk to you, man.
1: Great talking to you too, man. And stay safe, and yeah, we'll keep going and doing these gigs until you know. I mean, you know, this, it, it's a weird time, like you said, dude. It's well,
0: really uh, weird, man. But you know, a of, yeah,
1: a couple of my friends got that influenza thing, and it really kicked their ass.
0: You know what, I, 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 you know, stay cautious, uh, I mean, at 43, you know, I know Shannon, your daughter, I mean, it, like, I, I don't know, I mean, I, I don't feel as threatened just because of, of our age, but I also, I don't know, they're talking about this camel flu coming out of the World Cup now, I don't know what's going on, so it's just, oh. yeah, you know, it's just, All sorts it, of crap. you All know, crap. so, I you know, with when I see SCO, I did two great interviews with SCO this year, uh, and Molo, when, as long as I see that contingent rocking away, I'm, it, you know, it, it keeps me smiling. So, But, yeah, let's... let's
1: yeah, and I think John just keeps feeling more and more comfortable with the jam band thing. And
0: you know what he told me? It. What he told me, he's like, Phil is the only rock and roller that he's ever played with who literally wants to take it out every time. I thought that was the greatest line I've ever heard in my life, you know? He does. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know you know that, that. yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah, we were playing the other night, and I was just like... Remember, Phil likes it when it gets—you know—you lose the time, or you let it flow, or bring it back in, or extend it. Yeah, he's fine with it. And John's right. I—I I don't know anybody else that approaches it <laughs> like him.
0: Bless you, Mola. We'll be in touch, man. Okay. All right. Be See cool, you out, bro. Peace. Take care. Yeah. Bye.